Hey everybody, welcome to the A Better Way 2A podcast with Jordan and Andrew. This week, we've got Margaret Kiljoy on. She is the author of Escape from Incel Island and the host of Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, a podcast that is her podcast. Thanks for coming on, Margaret. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we had a bunch of people reach out to us since we started this saying that we should have you on the podcast. Oh, shit. And <laughs> he's saying a bunch. It's more than a bunch. Yeah. It's like a lot. It's like a lot of people. Yeah. If we have the question out there, hey, who should, who would you want us to have on the podcast? At least a dozen or so It's like you say, and Robert Evans are like the first 10 suggestions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Usually side by side at the same time. Yeah. Both of them. So we were like, yeah, absolutely have to get you on the show. I'm surprised it took us so long. I'm actually not surprised it took us so long because I'm horrible at getting things done that need to get done. But thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I like don't actually get to talk about guns all that much. And I have very complicated feelings about them, but I think about them a lot. So oh, we are the epitome of nuance and complication when it comes to oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> we love complicated gun politics. Cool. So when I reached out to you on the Twitter, formerly Twitter, now Cringetopia uh, USA. Still, still Twitter. Yeah, it's still Twitter. We always say Twitter. <laughs> We say we say, yeah, we say Twitter in this house. Yeah. Elon's uh-huh. like, don't dead name it. Don't dead name it. <laughs> <laughs> the one time he's ever given a shit about dead naming. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I don't even think he knows what that means. <laughs> so you know what we do. We talk about guns. We talk about the nuances of. Sometimes we talk about guns. Yeah, actually, <laughs> it's 50-50 to be honest. But mostly we just have people on the show that we think are cool. And you've done a ton of cool stuff, so. We're happy you're here. And you mentioned to me a while ago that your views on guns or gun ownership have changed slightly over the years. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, like where did you start and where are you now? Yeah, I've never been anti-gun. I grew up in a a household where my father's an ex-Marine with like a sharpshooting metal and my mom hates guns. And so there was like a Varmint twenty-two Magnum in the basement, you know, that like never got shot, right? Because my dad no longer lived on a farm, so he no longer needed to shoot groundhogs. So it was like disassembled and all of the pieces were in different places and stuff. So guns weren't a big part of my life. I I was a Boy Scout. It's funny. The first trans woman I was friends with was my best friend in Boy Scouts who came out years before I did. And so I like learned how to shoot in Boy Scouts and, you know, and then being involved in, in anarchist politics, I'm not around anti-gun stuff particularly. So I'd shoot guns here and there. I kind of complicated feelings about them and then and then I actually got way more into guns when Nazis started sending me pictures of my family, Oof. or rather uh, neo-Confederates, as they get very mad when I oh, call okay. them. Uh, I called them Nazis on Twitter, and they like made a Twitter account just to be like, "We're neo-Confederates," and I'm like, "I don't care." What? That might be worse, honestly. I don't know. And so then I got my concealed carry permit, and then I started getting more into guns, and you know, because I was taking classes and carrying, and I took it very seriously as a responsibility, and it. I'd actually love to at some point maybe today talk about like some of the ways that it changed the way that I defend and protect myself once I started carrying. And I I lived somewhere with a range. I lived on this off-grid land project for a long time. And so I have taught people how to shoot and I really enjoy that. And then earlier this year, I responded to the suicide of a child by firearm. And it changed things for me. Like there's no way that I'm going to have the same experiences with firearms now that I have 
had to interact with the body of a preteen. And so that's just, it's just different now. And, and I, frankly, I went six, seven months without touching my guns besides like making sure that they were clean and stored safely. You know, I didn't shoot for a very long time. And finally, I had to sit there and be like, well, I still believe in self-defense. I'm still a rural trans woman. I still have needs for self-defense. I need to not lose this skill. And I've gotten back into firearms again since then, and it has been a strange journey. But the thing that I've been all about since and that I spend a lot of my time sort of proselytizing is safe gun storage because I've sat there with the mother of that kid absolutely needed a gun, right? The mother of that kid absolutely for self-defense reasons. It was an incredibly rational decision for her to own a firearm. I've sat with her at a bar while she cried because the one time she didn't lock up her gun, you know, and... You know, and before that, I mean, like, I've always been someone who's like, I take gun safety seriously. You know, I I have a safe. I have a quick access safe next to my bed for my, my home defense gun, and I have a safe in the basement. I take safety seriously. I have other protocols that I believe in. I love to talk about, about, like, community ways of keeping track of each other as we do our cost-benefit analysis of when it does and doesn't make sense to be armed and and all of this stuff. But everyone gets a little lazy. You know, everyone's like, oh, I'm going to shoot it again tomorrow. It goes in the sock drawer. Or like, like, oh, my kids never come in here. Or no, I don't yeah, live with absolutely. kids, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and it's like some of the stuff that occurs to me, it's like, well, look, when I was a teenager, I broke into rural house. Like, I was a bad kid, right? Like, I can't say I've never found a cabin in the woods and been like, man, I wonder what's in here. No one's been here for a while and broken in. So, like, even as someone who doesn't live with children— I believe in locking my firearms up because it's not about the like moral, no, it is about morals, but it's not about the like legal responsibility of like, well, they broke into my house, so they were already breaking the law. Because my goal is not to have my hands clean. My goal is to not have children die, right? Of course. And so like kids break into shit. I don't know. I'd be a hypocrite to claim they didn't. So Of course they do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not just because someone commits a property crime like that as a kid. What does it mean that it's like, okay, whatever happens is on them, right? Totally. Totally. You know. I think, you know, if we all look back at our time as kids doing dumb shit, it would be disingenuous to say that kids don't make mistakes and that they shouldn't be afforded a certain benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to outwardly cause harm. That being said, it's tough being a person in the situation. It's easy for us to Monday morning quarterback and say, like, that guy shouldn't have shot this person in their house. But 3 o'clock in the morning, somebody wearing all black and no discernible features, you don't know if the person's 13 years old. And that's happened before. Totally. And it's really tough to, because I, I think most gun owners are like this, where they hope to never have to use their gun. And that's something that you take with you forever. And if it were a kid, that would be, I can't even imagine how much worse that would be. Let alone having to use your gun on a kid, but like having a kid like wander into your space and accidentally shoot himself. I mean, that's horror. You know, nobody wants that. Yeah. No, and it's actually, it's funny because it is very, two very different questions, right? If a kid broke into my house while I was asleep and there's an intruder in my house, like, I mean, obviously I'm not going to shoot someone over property crime, right? But like now you get into blurry, horrible territory, right? Of course. Whereas if no one's home, there's no blurriness, you know? And there are people out there who say that there are examples where people have chased people and shot them, you know? And like at that point, I've even told my wife, you know, our room is on the second floor. Our kid's room is right across the hall on the second floor. And 
she knows where I keep my gun upstairs, but she also knows that if people are downstairs, you don't go downstairs. No. If people are downstairs, let them take whatever they want. And yeah. as long as your life is not in danger, you bet your ass if somebody starts coming up those stairs, I'm going to tell them that we're in here and I have a gun because in Connecticut, you don't get the benefit of the doubt as much. There, we do have a castle doctrine, but it's much harder to just say they were in my house coming upstairs and I killed them. If you can say, I told them I had a gun and they continued to walk into my room, then it could be ascertained that they were trying to do something you know, more nefarious. Yeah. What's your liability in Connecticut legally for, like, if a minor gets access to your guns? Well, now, after our, the new gun laws that passed, before, you could be civilly liable, but not criminally liable. Now, with the new gun laws, you can be criminally liable. So, if a kid steals your gun and kills a friend, you could be charged with murder. Margaret, I want to know how you feel about that, too, because I have mixed feelings where... So I've got two kids. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, if my kids... Manslaughter, I, I know, should if, clarify. Yeah, what? Manslaughter, not murder. I'm sorry, yeah, that was yeah. eating me away. I apologize for interrupting. <laughs> if one of my kids got their hands on my gun and had an accident, I would feel like terrible. That would, that would absolutely be my fault, like morally and logically. But like, if I'm like looking at another family, like if I'm like looking at my neighbor who's like kid, whether he's like suicidal or is just curious and has an accident and kills himself with his parent's gun... I don't know if I'm okay with the state now being like, okay, well, now you're a felon. You know, now oh, yeah, I'm no, I charge you with a crime and take you to court for that. Because it's like, as much as that might be the parent's fault in some way or another, sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes it's a very determined kid. Sometimes it's just a weird set of circumstances. And all of that, irregardless, don't you feel like the parents have already like learned their lesson? Yeah. In most yeah, cases? The worst thing that could happen to the parent has already happened. Right. You know? So it's like you're going to send them to prison? You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, now they're just in double prison. <laughs> yeah, that'll like, show them. Double no, prison. I, <laughs> double prison. Because like, yeah, no, and, and for me it's funny because one of the reasons that I hate the way that we talk about guns in this country is because everyone talks about it, about legal frameworks. And I understand why the legal frameworks matter, and I understand why people are involved. To, frankly, I understand why people are involved on both sides of the gun issue in terms of why people are care, right? Because there's a thing that makes sense to care about. But I'm not interested in legal solutions. I'm interested in doing what's right and encouraging people to do what's right and inviting people to do what's right. And so, like, it's funny, the only gun law that I can immediately point to and be like, that rules, and I don't know the details on this. I just, I learned recently that Virginia passed a law where they'll give you money for a safe if you buy a gun or something yeah. like that. Yes, um, yeah. That yeah, like a tax rebate or something. We mentioned yeah. that. It's, I think it's awesome. Yeah, like that I have, there's no part of me that I'm like, because encouraging safe gun like ownership and like is good, but doing it by yelling at people is not effective. Right. Also, like if you're going to require that someone lock up a gun and keep it away from kids, you have to, like as a government, like if, if it's like under penalty of law, you have to keep this gun safe. You have to either provide the means for that to happen or at least like subsidize it. Yeah, totally. Because it's you like, don't have to, but it makes sense to do it. No, I mean like morally. Like morally. Yeah, totally. Like if you want to be in the right, on the right side of history, on the right side of morality as a government, yes, you need to do that. Well, but it's not the government who it is the government who's drafting up these laws, but it's not them who are it's them who are sponsoring the laws, but the people who write them are moms demand action. They're the Bloomberg funded groups and these are the people that want to implement gun taxes. They don't necessarily want the a law just to save lives by itself. They want it to be punitive also. If yeah, like yeah. that's the cherry on top, you know. Otherwise they wouldn't try to pass a classist law that 
makes it prohibitively expensive to, they wanted to put a 15% tax on ammo. Uh, well, originally it was a 50% tax. Yeah, so now you uh, just can't be good at it with a gun. You can have a gun, but you can't be good at it. You can't know how to shoot. Yeah, or if you, unless you're rich. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and that's, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, that the whole reason the NFA, an NFA item costs $200 for the tax stamp is because at the time, a Thompson submachine gun was $200 and they specifically wanted to ban, make it more difficult for gangsters to buy that gun. Yeah. I like saying the word gangsters. I feel like we should bring that back. <laughs> gangsters. You know, it's, I hate when people refer to people as thugs because you know what the connotation behind that word is. But yeah. I feel like if we refer to people as gangsters, it doesn't matter what race they are, what like what preconceived notions a person has about them. It's that's the gangsters are at it again. And I like, mean, it does make just, them sound cool. It does. But sometimes they're least, being cool. Sometimes they're being shitty. Sometimes they're being, <laughs> there were shitty gangsters back yeah, then. Yeah, laws you know? are I mean, completely unrelated to morality. There's no positive or negative correlation between law exactly. and morality. Exactly. Yeah. Cannot say that enough. So we have this, well, first of all, Margaret, have you had these conversations with people, with any friends, family, or people that you just may have talked to as somebody who is pro-gun ownership, but wants there to be more of like a moral obligation to people. Have you had conversations like this with people who are just anti-gun and want guns gone? It's funny because I, I have more of these conversations with, no, that's not true. I do have conversations in both directions. And I have conversations both with my like very pro-gun friends and my very anti-gun friends. And I actually, okay, there's two kinds of anti-gun people. I'm, anytime anyone says there's two categories of something, they're wrong. But let's go with it. There's two categories <laughs> of anti-gun people. There's, there's two the people. main categories. The two genders of anti-gun. <laughs> and I, I would say that there's people who are just like, I hate all guns, fuck all guns. And then there's the people who are like, I understand why this might exist, but I'm overall against this because of the following reasons. Like, like I had this, um, I gave this talk and the other podcast I run is called Live Like the World's Dying. It's a preparedness podcast, and we talk about firearms on it. And this person at the talk said, you know, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your show. Listening to the show with my partner is why she decided she's okay with me having a gun in the house. And afterwards, my friend, who's also an anarchist, who is not a, like, let's come up with carceral solutions to problems, isn't, was like, that made me really uncomfortable because I am fully aware that women are less safe statistically if their male partner owns a firearm and keeps it in the house. And that's just something that we have to wrestle with, right? However, and so the conversations I had with her were very generative, and we did not, neither of us ended up in the exact same place that we had started, right? And I think that those are the better conversations to have when possible. And this has to be people who are coming at things in good faith, you know? 100%. And, and so the conversation I had with her revolved around, I think, overall, an armed society is not a safer society. I just genuinely, I think that when everyone has guns, more people get shot. I think that most statistics sort of back this up. However, that doesn't mean that I don't have a right to self-defense, that this other person doesn't have a right to self-defense. That does not invalidate, because like also when it comes down to it, even if there's going to be laws, they should be against doing the bad thing. Like, like murder is already a crime, right? So you shouldn't be allowed to murder anyone with guns. That's like covered by the law, don't murder, you know? <laughs> and so like, it's like curfew laws. Curfew laws are infantilizing, right? Because you're like, oh, well, more graffiti happens if people are out past curfew. And I'm like, well, I don't care. Graffiti is a crime, whether or not it should be, whatever. But like, that's the crime. Like being out late at night shouldn't be the crime. And that tends to be my attitude around firearms, right? Is like, it is a, yeah, I shouldn't do bad things with my gun, you know? But there's still, of course, for me, 
anytime you own a firearm or especially carry a firearm, you're making a cost-benefit analysis. And your cost-benefit analysis can't just be like, I want a gun. I like who I am with a gun. Guns are cool. Guns fit my image. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like instead it needs to be like, I carry a firearm because I believe that it makes me and the people around me more safe. And on any given day, if that math changes, I'm not carrying a firearm on the day where it makes me and the people around me less safe. And there's a lot of ways that that can happen. Anyone who's like sad, anyone who's dealing with like a breakup, anyone who has like certain things that they're dealing with, they might be less safe on any given day. Again, I'm not talking about car source solutions. I'm not talking about government red flag logs. So let's lay that down right now that like, because you already mentioned that, but just for clarity's sake, like what we're talking about here are not like legal solutions. We'll be explicit if we're asking about that. But for the listeners, like, yeah, we're talking about like individual or community sort of cultural kind of practices here. Yeah, totally. And like to use an example, right, in the like kind of like punk community that I am in, when someone gets broken up with, it is like a default assumption that they will probably take like the barrel and out of a handgun and the bolt out of a long gun and give it to someone to hold on to for a little while, like a week or two. Like, And if you just make that automatic, because at that point, your threat analysis is just different. Who is the most likely person to hurt me right now, right? And if the most likely person to hurt me at any given point is me, which in in my personal case is not a thing I particularly struggle with, right? But you just make it automatic. You're like, ah, Margaret got dumped, so she gave me the barrel to her guns, you know? And, like, you just make that automatic. It is not a red flag law. It is not a, like, and now, but I have Nazis stalking me currently, or, like, they showed up at my house. Then the math changes again. On the other hand, I'm part of a community where, like, when the Nazis (laughs) come to my house, so do my friends, you know? Okay, so then the larger picture, sorry, I'm I'm ranting, but I'm I'm going somewhere, I promise. No, go. Get it. That's okay. We're all rants here. Is that... This cost-benefit analysis is different at different times in history and times in place. And right now, I face a lot more threat from the people who specifically, well, I mean, obviously, there's like the neo-Confederates who said, we want to kill you, Margaret. Here's pictures of your family. We're going to burn your house down, right? Right, but now it's like a lot of garden-variety conservatives are like, the trans people are going to end society. Right. And in my reading about history, a thing that comes up again and again is that small arms can make the difference between a community of people surviving a genocide or not surviving a genocide. Yeah. And to be clear, what you're talking about is not stopping a genocide. What you're talking about is a targeted community surviving in some sense. Right. Which is exactly which is 100% true. Yeah. Because people are always like, oh, well, how are you going to use an AR-15 to stop the U.S. government? I'm like, well, I'm not. But I can use an AR-15 to stop the Nazis who are trying to get like the people in front of your house in that immediate moment. Yeah, exactly. And just like every week I do, I deep dive a different history thing. And and several of them have this come have come up. But the, the one that really sits in my head is the Warsaw Ghetto. The Warsaw Ghetto uprising was this thing that happened in Warsaw during the Nazi occupation, where basically as the Jews who were forced to live in this particular ghetto, this walled compound in the city, as they're being exterminated, eventually all reform, all playing nice is over. And they're like, we just need to shoot all the Nazis or we're all going to die. And the thing that people fought and died for during the buildup to that was smuggling small arms into the ghetto because they didn't think we need, I mean, you know, the Nazis have like tanks and planes and all the fucking artillery and all the ephemera of like a modern military, 20th century military, right? They didn't think this Molotov cocktail, this hand grenade and this pistol are going to stop the Nazis from existing, but they'll stop that Nazi from existing, you know? Yeah, right. And it, it was 
reasonably effective. I mean, overall, it, fucking horribly, but I've read at least one place that the people who were active participants in the uprising had a higher survival rate than the people who did not. I mean, it's clear that if people are actively exterminating you and you put up resistance, then you're you're going to fare better than the people who didn't. Yeah, exactly. And and so that's why small arms matter to me on a, both an individual self-defense level and also community defense level is that I just read too much history to think that guns don't matter. Yeah. But I also am like, <laughs> I tell people before they come over to my house sometimes, I mean, like, look, I have firearms. Here's how they're locked up. Do you feel all right with that? Because I understand when people aren't comfortable with it. As a parent, that's something that we're going to have to deal with too. You know, and that's having never had to deal with that before. Well, I should say, I probably should have dealt with that before. But like now that it's like the possibility of like someone's kids coming over here, you know, and people are going to want to know. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie and be like, no, I don't have any guns. Yeah. I want to have those conversations, honestly. So in Connecticut, we don't have an obligation to notify a cop when we get pulled over that I'm carrying a gun. Oh, that's nice. I still have friends, like people I know who have said, oh, I always let the cop know. And to me, that's just like unnecessary information. That's not... Your escalating I, I, I situation. In Texas? Yeah. It will possibly. And, and you know, depending on who you get, depending on what they've dealt with that day, whatever. Like, I don't want to introduce a variable to a situation that could have otherwise been non-confrontational. Well, and it's really annoying. In Texas, we do have to notify. If we're licensed, you know, and it's, I have to get more up to date because I'm not exactly sure how it works now that we're constitutional carry. But at least back when it was like you had to have a license to carry here, well, and, and it was still this way when you could carry, they had like sort of limited constitutional carry in your car. Anyways, point being, you have to tell the cop. You have to tell the cop you have a legally concealed firearm on your person or in the vehicle. And the way that I always did it was when I would hand my, because I got pulled over, I, I did a lot of speeding when I was a young guy. <laughs> Don't be like me. It's expensive and dangerous. Especially uh, if you have guns. <laughs> you have to be over. so much more law-abiding yeah. once you're armed. It's oh. annoying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it happened to me a lot. So I, yeah. I uh, would hand over my my driver's license and also my carry license. Yeah. And also my and, gun. And also, no, no, 100% don't pull out a gun. How to um, accelerate a situation. So one, the one thing that you don't ever do. Yeah. But so, and it was really annoying. Here, officer, because, let me just get my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed so, to throw your wallet at the cop as hard as you can in fast, jerky motions. I love that it's like, do that. it's like the equivalent of getting mugged, you know, just like throw your wallet yeah. and run. Is that, that's what we should have to do when we yeah. get stopped by cops. Because the, the you're basically getting mugged. You can seize. They're basically like, get, yo, give me $75. Yeah. You know, that is, I have a gun, give me $75. That is the sum of what happens when you get pulled over. Yeah. I mean, seriously. I have a wallet with a label that says civil asset forfeiture. On it. <laughs> oh. That draws their attention. But no, so I would show them the license in as peaceful of a way as possible so that I'm not like saying the word gun, which if you don't know is a trigger for cops. You just hold up the permit and go, it will. No, I'd hand it over on top of my driver's license. And 75% of the time, I don't know if I've ever explained this, but I have an Arizona carry permit because that's where I lived when I got my license. And it just was never pertinent for me to go get a Texas license because the reciprocity is like basically the same. Yeah. And like 75% of the time, these cops would be like, this isn't Arizona, buddy. Like, be like what wow. are you doing with an Arizona permit? You sure are enforcing laws you don't know. You live in Texas. God. And You're sure informed so, about geography, officer. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, you know, and at some point I'm just like, look, I don't want to get into it, but it's legal. It's legal. You can Google it. I don't like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm yeah. sorry. I don't know what to tell you, officer. Like, you know, I, I may be, I may be, I may be driving too fast, but I'm not a firearms criminal. 
yet. Um, Until they make it we legal. So, you're allowed to so have a firearm like, unless you break any other law. Like, you're allowed to have a firearm yeah, right. unless yeah. you're yes. speeding. And then you're speeding with intent to gun. With a gun. Well, yeah. <laughs> in Texas, the firearm is, is a, like an exacerbating factor for any felony. It doesn't matter for misdemeanors, but any so like felony. like reckless driving with a firearm? Reckless driving with a firearm is not a big deal. Uh, Isn't reckless driving a felony? Is it? Well, anyway, okay. So anyway, maybe reckless driving track. with a firearm. But so like any like felony that you do, if you have a gun on you, it's, it's enhanced with the firearm. But point being about this whole fucking story is like any place where you have like a requirement to like complicate an interaction with a cop. Yeah. It feels like that's just a recipe for disaster because at any point, like if I wasn't a white guy, you know, like what, how do you think that any number of these like tense interactions would have gone with these cops? You know, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. It's just very frustrating where it's like, okay, so it's like the government thinks they're making society safer by making these requirements. You have to tell the cop that you have a gun. Makes sense to the government. Cops want to know that kind of thing. This is safety. This is gun safety from the government. But in reality, it's like, it's a problem. It becomes a problem. It's a complicating factor. It makes situations more tense. I mean, I'm sure there's like any number of, I know you don't really, we're not going to get too deep into gun control here, but it's just, to me, it illustrates that like gun safety really does need to come from the bottom up. And it really can't, in my opinion, I don't know if you guys agree or disagree, but gun safety really can't come from the legislative process. Well, that's kind of how this whole law requiring people to lock up their guns or face punitive consequences when their kid gets a hold of it looks is that it's only a law that's enforceable after something terrible happens. So the kid's are already going to be dead or maimed or uh, somebody else hurt, and then the law is enforceable. It doesn't prevent anything because my assumption, based on me being a responsible gun owner, is that I keep my guns inaccessible to my child because the thought of my child getting a hold of my gun is enough of a threat yeah. right. for so me to be, do so. If yeah. they're trying to disincentivize you from being lazy about your gun safety, do they really think that like... An unenforceable law. It's like a speed limit sign with no cops yeah. in town. But it's like the disincentive is you don't want a lethal accident to happen, right? And that's why I think cultural solutions are... I think changing gun culture is the better strategy and just encouraging people to take guns seriously and to take the rules of firearm safety seriously. You know, it's like the crowd that I roll with, like if someone flags someone, I mean, it literally happens sometimes, right? You're training and, and someone flags someone, but it is a big deal. And everyone's, and you don't do it again because you're fucking embarrassed because we create yeah. a culture where you're like, of course you do this. Of course. Shame you them. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, basically. Yeah. And like, and people are like, well, how does that scale up? And I'm like, I almost don't care. I do care, right? But overall, I'm not in charge of other people. I don't know. If the question is, how does it scale up? Why does it need to scale up? If every individual right. group of people totally. are doing this, it doesn't matter. Like, you know. Because then you have groups that people are like, oh, you hang out with those assholes. They flag each other sometimes. Right. And like, they don't yeah. think it's yeah. a big deal. Or like. They're irresponsible. And we see this even in like non-politicized gun spaces, right? Or like across the political spectrum gun spaces. People make fun of pictures with bad trigger discipline. Like whenever, because now obviously we live in a world where there's a lot more pictures of armed people with long arms in public at protests, right? On both sides. And when you see pictures of people with bad trigger discipline, everyone's going to fucking make fun of them because it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. 
Listeners, if you don't follow Pipe Hawk Consulting, every time there's an open carry protest, he'll find out pictures of weird rhydoids and uh, <laughs> pick apart their gear. He's a special forces guy, so he's like, he knows about the gear selection process. Which is so funny because in previous episodes, we've been like, just because you're in the military police doesn't mean you know shit about firearms. And then we go ahead and qualify the guy by saying he's in special forces. Well, you know, okay. So he yeah, knows his right. shit. He knows, he his, knows shit. his shit regardless of whether he's yeah, special yeah, yeah, forces. Exactly. Sometimes for the rhydoids, you got to appeal to authority, though. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I had to start off by being like, my dad has a sharpshooting medal or whatever. (laughs) From the military. (laughs) So my thought on a personal level is that it makes sense to keep your guns locked up when, unless you're responsible enough to where, so if I'm at home, my specific situation dictates that my kid can go nowhere near my gun because it's upstairs, which she doesn't climb because I'm with her. And it's actually, it's funny, I just bought a after this law went through, not because of the law, but because I was like, you know, now she just happened to start walking around the same time. And I'm like, all right, now that she can reach drawers and shit, I have to start locking up my gun when I'm not home and things like that. But up until that point, I kept my gun in a drawer upstairs that was out of reach, out of sight, because that's what made sense for me. But I look at this situation where so kids killing themselves by accident with guns. And I don't know how it was not an accident. He left a yeah, note, unfortunately. Yeah. Ah, that's horrible. Let me rephrase this. So I see a lot of these anti-gun organizations, especially now because they've come out with data that suggests that firearm deaths are the number one leading cause of death for kids. And a large percentage of that happens to be, even though the fact that kids killing themselves accidentally are terrible, and we don't have to say that because we know that, the majority of them are done intentionally throughout various means, you know, inner city violence, unfortunately. So I think a lot of people lose track of the the magnitude of responsibility that goes into making sure your gun is not accessible to a kid. Because I would say anyone who looks at the data from a gun owner's perspective thinks like, all right, it's a problem, but those are people are irresponsible. That's not me. Like in my head, I'm thinking like that would never happen, you know, up until now that my, my daughter's walking. How do we, and then it does, and that's the problem. Like no parent ever thought their kid was going to kill themselves by accident or on purpose with their parent's gun, you know? How do we change the gun culture to encourage behavior that would prevent things like that without passing laws to require it? I mean, like the only legal thing that makes sense to me is the tax rebates or whatever, the free safes. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And then of course, obviously you can like, you can like, it was funny when I first moved to West Virginia, I like bought a safe from Tractor Supply on um, on Black Friday. And I like... As you do. Yeah, and I, I bought it online because it's an online sale. And so then the next day, I'm just like in line and with all these pickup trucks, like waiting for the like fucking... Um, <laughs> Like yes. the forklift to they come had a out gun and drop drive through. Yeah, because like oh my god, everyone in town bought fucking because there was such yeah. a yeah. Like and I just like never felt more like oh it's because I just moved to West Virginia and I'm like what am I doing here? I'm this like queer kid. I moved Hello, here because hello like, West Virginia. Yeah, and then I'm like I'm here to pick up my gun safe. I drive a giant truck. And I'm here to buy a gun safe. It's fine. I have bangs and a nose ring and, and like, don't talk the same. Like, no one gives a shit in the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like you, you wig yourself out and then it's like everything goes smoothly. Yeah, no, totally. Like, I don't know. And so, and obviously you can get like free locks most places. And, and obviously 
people can break into the little cable locks fairly easily, and they're not particularly quick access. And but they're way better than nothing. You know, they would turn away most like. And so, like all the guns that aren't your current gun, if you don't have a safe, you can put it and you just lock them up. But obviously, it's not necessarily useful for your like daily carry gun or whatever. But like in terms of how we create a culture around it. I think we just tell people, like, this is good, you know, and just be like, and we can use, I even, like, I use the personal story, which is the kind of thing an anti-gun person might do, right? Being like, I saw the following thing, and now I think that all guns should be thrown into the ocean. Like, well. Look how much success they have with it. I know, and it's like, but it is, it's earnest for me, right? I, like, know what a child's brains look like, and it sucks, and I fucking hate it. And it's funny, I was like, I'll never forget this. And then my brain does the like, that's trauma. Please ball it up and put it in yeah. the no-no <laughs> yeah. zone, you know? Put that away. <laughs> yeah. But like, but then even like the throw them into the ocean thing, I'm like, oh yeah, that's literally what um, the Dominican Republic had did to all the guns before they genocided all the Haitian folks living on the border, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh God. You know, and then they couldn't defend themselves because they had just gotten rid of like millions of guns in the country or whatever. And so I think that we can make personal appeals and it, it's a slow uphill battle. Like, like when it first happened, I was like talking to a bunch of my friends and I was like, look, like, can we start using our platforms to like push this gun safety stuff, you know? And some people do, right? But people are kind of reticent about it. And they're kind of reticent about it, one, because not all of us do it yet, right? Like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty safe. And then I'm like, I will tell you that the worst 30 seconds of my life were when I got home and I was like, oh God, where's my handgun? What if that was my handgun? And while I was trying to track down my handgun was the worst 30 seconds of my life because I thought that this kid had used it. And there was no rational reason. There's no reason why it would have been mine. But I get it though. I I had a gun stolen out of my car years ago and I still think about it today. Almost every day I think about it. I'm like, I sure hope nobody murdered anybody with that gun. I know. And like, and so- Okay, I actually think the way that we build the culture is we build a culture of, like, honor and responsibility. Like, I'm really lucky. The person who taught me guns more than anyone else, the person who, like, helped me through, taught me, like, took me out to the range a lot. Like, you know, I had to take my concealed carry class from a place. But, like, I learned everything ahead of time from a friend of mine. And this friend of mine basically has, like, a warrior code around it. And it's the kind of thing that, like, I think is good is that we have this, like, he just absolutely takes it very seriously. He is, like, never drinks in public because he's carrying, and so he does not carry while drunk. And so he makes that decision. If he goes out to the bar, he doesn't bring his gun. Or he goes out to the bar and he stays sober, and he's there to protect people, right? He does not pick fights. He backs away from fights. You know, and he does these things. It's actually really funny to me, right? Like, I used to, I was a queer street kid, right? And I was like, I had, a, I had a beard and a dress and people didn't know what to make of me. And a lot of people, what they wanted to make of me was to scream faggot at me from the car, you know? And like, and I remember once a lawyer friend of mine was like, what do you do when people scream faggot at you? And I'm like, oh, usually I chase them with a knife and then they run away. <laughs> He's like, that's a felony. And I'm like, it's worked so far. And like, <laughs> and at, at some point, and I, I remember, and actually I, I was explaining this in a martial arts class and People were like, well, that's dumb. What do you do if they stop and fight? And I'm like, then I turn around and run. <laughs> yeah. It's never it's never come to that. They always run away. But my backup plan is that I'm going to run. I'm not knife fighting anyone, you know? No. 
That's a lose-lose. Yeah, but chasing people away with a knife, I am not advocating that. That is a crime. But it left me feeling powerful in a situation that was designed to disempower me. And so screaming and yelling at people who harassed me was an incredibly effective thing for me to get through a certain period of my life. As soon as I started carrying, I had to change that 180 immediately. Like I remember at one point, I'm walking down the street, middle of the night, some guy, the more femme you dress, I don't know if you all caught, learn this, the more that people read you as a woman, the less they take where you're walking into account when they plan their own trajectory. Oh, wow. There's this expectation that women get out of the way of men and men subconsciously yeah, do it. And so there's this thing where sometimes women just like shoulder check men and it makes women look aggressive. Literally all they're doing is not is walking in a straight line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I don't pass except kind of in dark alleys and shit, you know? Do you frequent those? (laughs) (laughs) You should see my nighttime commute home. Batman would be scared. God. Yeah, no, now I'm like, I don't know where the nearest alley is. I've lived rurally for years now. And so I'm like walking alone and there's this guy who just like, he's not like trying to run into me, but there's there's no one around, huge wide sidewalk. And he just walks right into me and I let him. And then I turn around, I'm like, what the fuck was that? And he's like, what? Nothing. And I'm like, no, what the fuck was that? And then he like kind of backs off and then he leaves. And I'm like, fuck, I can't do that. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. I can no longer do that. Escalate. Yeah, exactly. Because like escalating as a trans woman alone in the dark is sometimes a safety thing. It's a dangerous game. I'm not advocating it, but it's every trans person I know in every direction does this. On, every queer person I know does this on some level where they like, sometimes are like the safest thing for me right now is to spit on this guy or whatever, you know? Make yourself seem big. Yeah, exactly. That's what animals do, you know, Yeah, to scare away predators. And when we carry guns, we cannot. And we are morally, it is morally, I don't give a shit about law. I mean, I give a shit in that I don't want to go to prison, so I obey the law. But it is morally irresponsible for me to put that man in a situation where he could die Because he did not take into account where I was walking because I passed as a woman that day. And so I honestly, like, sometimes I'm like, man, I fucking hate carrying a gun. This sucks. Like, but that is the cultural, the thing that we need to build. And I think that gun people do this on some level and we just need to keep stepping it up. This is like holy responsibility. Like, I think about, like, my friends who are regularly armed and they are the calmest motherfuckers at the party because they are sober and they are keeping track of what's happening and they are there because people like shooting at gay clubs. And, like, God fucking bless them. And I think that expanding that sense and expanding what is included in that sense of responsibility is what I encourage people to do. And there's this, like, I don't know. Yeah, I can keep going on about this, but I believe in <laughs> I believe it is up to us to model good right. behavior and to encourage good behavior rather than specifically seeking out to punish people, especially people who've lost everything, you know? Yeah. We've kind of touched on this idea before. when We've talked about other things that we feel are more cultural than legal problems, but people get real uncomfortable when the answer to a question of like, how do we solve this problem? When the answer is you personally have to work really hard your whole life and do it, you may not see the benefits of it, before you die. People don't like that. But sometimes (laughs) if you're looking for a bottom-up solution, you are sometimes near the bottom and you have to start pushing up. And that's just the way it is. And it can be really unrewarding and frustrating for you. But hopefully for our kids and our grandkids, things will improve. Hey there, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you do like what we're about and want to support us, our Patreon is a fantastic way to do so. 
It allows us to improve the podcast in many ways and helps fund our alcoholic coffee beverage stash to assist on those late night recording sessions. Now you may be thinking, this podcast has me absolutely smitten and I would love nothing more than to throw money at you, but what's in it for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you become a patron, you automatically get access to an exclusive collection of clips from the podcast not heard anywhere else. On top of that, we have a wide range of tiers available that will get you merch, discount codes, and even free gear delivered to you monthly. For any patrons currently listening to this, we are super thankful for your support and for keeping the dream alive that one day I will be able to meet Andrew and make sweet, sweet podcast magic with him in person. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash a better way to a in the episode notes for the podcast or on the link in our Instagram bio. All right, now that's all for that. Back to the show. I have these conversations with people occasionally where I'll digress a little bit. We posted something when that article came out initially saying how gun deaths were the number one way that kids died in 2022 or 2023. I forget what it was, but I think it was a 2023 article, but it was talking about the previous year. And we said it in a way where we said, listen, like this is the breakdown. Only 2% of the kids that are dying are dying from accidental shootings, even though that's what the anti-gun, hate saying anti-gun lobby, but that's essentially when it's funded as much as the NRA, then it starts to become that. Even though that's what they focus on, because for them, it's easier to say like, this is the problem is unlocked guns, not, hey, this is a systemic issue that we need to talk about systemic inequality and disenfranchised cities and things like that. That's not a mom's demand action talking point. And even though we prefaced that, there were a lot of defensive people in the comments breaking apart the statistics saying, well, they included 18 year olds, they included 19 year olds or this gun death, this is gang shooting this and gang shooting makes up a remarkably small percentage of gun deaths, actually. Oh, interesting. Specifically. Yeah, it's like 16 percent or 13 percent of gun homicides. A lot of that is because of the fact that information is not reported in a uniform way. They're uncharacterized or they're characterized improperly, but that's the data that we have to go off. But there was a lot of defensive people in the comments because we essentially finished it by saying, like, we have to do better. Even though this percentage is low, this is what people are using against us. So we have to do better. The responsibility is on us. And I was kind of disappointed by the response from some people. For a second, could be like, you know, you're right. While I may be responsible, it's my job to call people out who aren't. And it's something that, you know, you hope you do when the time comes. But what I also found is that, you know how when you get out of high school, you start dropping friends, people who you lose contact with, people who you no longer have things in common with. I've done the same thing with friends who I used to share gun ownership with, people who I used to shoot with. And that was our only real commonality because we either didn't like the same type of things. We didn't shoot the same stuff. My one friend who spends fifty thousand Glock versus M and P. Yes, sure, sure. <laughs> I'm joking, but it's sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> essentially that you know, like he was big into hunting. I don't hunt, so like you know, what are we going to do, kind of thing. And what I found is that all of my friends who shoot now are responsible. The friends that I surround myself with, the gun owners that I surround myself with, aren't doing irresponsible shit. So I don't know, other than using our platform as a better way to a and encouraging gun safety. I don't know how to find unsafe gun owners and be like, y'all are fucked up. It's tough because it almost makes it into a boogeyman. (laughs) Well, first of all, when you do find them, don't lead with y'all are fucked up. (laughs) Well, and I guess that's actually what I want to say is that like, yeah, like it's more of a bringing people into the light instead of chastising them for standing in the dark. I like that. Yeah, Jordan. 
Get your shit together. I was just saying. No, 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 I know. I would be a little bit more tactful. But yeah, you're saying that it's like, because your reach with this show is responsible gun owners. But you can kind of only reach the people who want to be responsible gun owners. And we actually have to kind of keep each other in check around it, right? Because it's like, if we're responsible gun owners, we might think we're responsible gun owners, but there's these things that we don't know yet. You know, are these things that are shifting or changing that we haven't like totally internalized yet? For sure. Generally speaking. And I'm asking this kind of as a rhetorical question. Not rhetorical, but I think I know your answer. Do you think people are responsible enough to disarm themselves when they need to? Or do you think that that is something that should have a maybe not necessarily judicial intervention to it, but a third party should be responsible for that? Like a civil intervention? Something like that. I think that overall, I think responsibility is like a muscle we develop. And so like people aren't instinctively good or bad or whatever, you know, responsible, irresponsible. We have to get used to building good habits and build up responsibility. And I think that everyone has like a threshold where they would be self-aware up to a certain point and everyone's threshold is going to be different. Like I might not realize I'm having a really bad day and I'm in a dangerous headspace if it's really bad. I'm fairly good at knowing and tracking where I'm at, but that took a while to develop. So long-term, I think that the solution is to encourage us to develop responsibility as individuals. Then you get into another layer of it, which is like community responsibility, where it's like people you know. And this is only available to certain people. I have it built into being like a queer punk in that like, I will be around other people who we all have very similar interests. We all go shoot guns and hate Nazis and stuff or whatever, right? And so it's easy for me to decide to put in my trust to them where if we make an automatic rule, it's automatic. Margaret got dumped. Margaret self-surrenders. And the reason I say, people probably already know this, but the reason I say like barrels and some people use firing pins or the whole bolt or whatever, it's just that it's not the registered part of the firearm that's a firearm. Yeah, that makes sense. In some states, you can't legally hold on to someone else's gun, which is an example of gun laws working against safety. Because I can't just be like, here, hold my shotgun. I'm sad, which I should be able to do. But that's private transfer of firearms and it's complicated some places and whatever. Anyway, as an individual building responsibility, absolutely, but not everyone's there yet. And no one's ever totally there. Then community guidelines of people who care about each other and know each other, that I feel absolutely good about. The idea of having like a third party civil kind of thing is complicated. And I don't know. I mean, there's this whole thing where like anytime you talk about anything that is like state, Everyone probably knows this, but like the reason that anti-gun stuff is so hypocritical often, anything that relies on the law to enforce it means it's relying on firearms. It relies on firearms to enforce. (laughs) You're saying that those people are allowed to have guns telling these people they can't have guns. I don't know. That's not fucking great. And a, a civil thing would have to be very complicated. Now that I say this, I actually do know social workers who I think I could totally pull this off. And like, there's been a lot of work around social work as intervention and from a police abolitionist point of view. And it's blurry because... Sometimes then you're just sort of replicating the police, but not always. And like, I know people who could go to someone and be like, hey, bud, here you're sad. We care about you. Here's a lot of resources. By the way, can I have the barrel to your gun? And I don't know. I don't have a systemic solution here. I don't know. There's even been police departments that have, and you know, it's funny because You hear people talk shit about it because they say, oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to send a social worker to a bank robber? Because they just want to straw man the shit out of it and not consider the actual argument here. Yeah. That when people with guns show up to 
complicated situations. And there have actually been police departments who have invested into these programs where they, when somebody is in crisis and somebody's suicidal or something, they send people who are specifically trained. Most of the time, it's cops out of uniform who are trained in this kind of situation. That didn't bring a gun. That didn't bring a gun. They're not in uniform. They don't have guns. And they've had incredible success with this stuff. I think it says a lot because essentially what they're doing, though, is taking the place of a community member, a family member, friend, community member. A lot of times these people are houseless and don't have that community to be able to reach out to or the community doesn't know. That's one of the things that I see as a place that we should be filling in. And I don't know how to get there, to be honest, but it's crazy that half of the gun deaths in this country are suicides, over half most years. That's that cost-benefit analysis. It's crazy to me that that's something that affects us so harshly, and we as gun owners haven't developed a solution to that, because that is also what contributes to the statistic that gun control advocates use against us as well. So it would be in our best interest to figure the shit out. I'm really skeptical of any solution that's like, oh, we'll have the police department do it. The police department sending unarmed, specialized personnel to those kinds of calls, very cool, very encouraging. But if the question is like, where should a suicidal person's guns go? If anybody suggests to me like, oh, the police department has a program whereby they will check in your guns and a disinterested third party will make sure. I'm like, no, I'm never going to suggest that somebody turn their guns over to cops, even if it's like, oh, we promise it's temporary. Because for some people, it might be. For some people, it might not be. Yeah. But we do have independent organizations like Hold My Guns. Oh, cool. Which not everybody agrees with that lady's politics, but you don't need to. I don't even know her politics because they haven't been important to me up until you said something. And now I'm curious. That's the weird derangement of just existing in the world today is like, so holdmyguns.org is very apolitical, but would you believe it? There is a human that runs it and she's like mainstream conservative. Yeah. My position on that is that it's like, if you credibly believe that a conservative running an organization like that might like keep a trans person's guns because they're like, they're unwell. Past the point that they're suicidal, they'll just make Well, they don't keep the guns. Well, right. They work with gun stores and FFLs that hold the guns for you. But like, if you think that at any level of that process that somebody in there is untrustworthy, well, maybe make like a little organization like that between you and your friends, right? Take that process and look at how this works. And try to create something more tailored to you and your community. Yeah. I think that I'm a much bigger fan of that approach of like, there doesn't need to be like one authority on keeping guns safe. We can all learn how to do this and apply it in our own lives. I also think that here's an opinion that I haven't spoken aloud besides like to a friend or two here and there. Let's go. Love it. In some ways I'm like, well, but not everyone needs to have a gun for most purposes of safety. Now, even if most people in a given community who care about, like, let's say you have a group that cares about community defense and does not want to be caught without access to small arms in times of turmoil. There's actually like a reason for, if there's like a old trustworthy person who has a bunch of guns, that's maybe better than everyone necessarily having their own gun. I think people who want to care about training and being ready and stuff will likely get a lot out of gun ownership, will get a lot out of training, will get out a lot of things. But cost-benefit analysis always needs to be run. And like sometimes maybe it's like, well, I know that if the following shit changes, I'm going to go use my friend's gun. I have no idea what the laws are around any of this. So this is a real hypothetical I'm talking about here. (laughs) But, you know, it's like if there's suddenly a civil war or some shit. The reason that this idea messes with my head is because it actually says that like the person who just collects 
I'm building a new AR-15 this week. I already have one that's like this. And usually people are a little bit like, well, that's a little dumb. You already have one. Why are you doing that? Instead of like going and buying a rangefinder or getting night vision, you know, like stepping up your game in some other way. And I'm kind of like, I don't mind that one person has all those guns and then the rest of us don't yeah. have guns. Like that could be fine sometimes. Somebody who builds like models, you know, it's like, oh, I'm building a new model this week. You wouldn't be like, well, why don't you upgrade one of your other models? Like <laughs> you already have 10 trains. I know. Totally. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about, which actually goes counter to my whole, like, in case of civil war, I actually would say that, like, well, one, anything we can do to avoid a civil war is absolutely in our best interest. Yes, please. And one of the things that I think about a lot as a rural queer person, although a white rural queer person, is that the center right is not my enemy. Like, the poor working class center right doesn't seem to have any particular problem with me where I live. I don't live in a very culture war area. Like, it hasn't quite hit here that all gay people are groomers trying to, like, sexually abused children or whatever. Margaret, I love that you're saying this right now (laughs) because we just posted about this. I'm sitting here. I've got like goose pimples on my arms. He got roasted by some like very online leftists. It was one person. I totally understand. No, there were like two people that made the same point. But It was two people. It was like 130 comments. Yeah, (laughs) they really made the point. And I totally understand it. I totally understand people's reticence to engage with the people that you're talking about, Margaret. I get it. It's not illogical. And if it's too much for you, you can stay at home. It's fine. But like, if any of you guys are listening to this and you're like, Margaret's betraying us. Margaret's betraying us to the fascists. Like, don't post about it. Don't comment. Because she said the people on the center right are not Nazis. And here's my pitch about it, is that overall there should be fewer Nazis. That's like my goal. That's a good goal. So when we give people to the Nazis, that's bad. We should be real careful when we say this person's a Nazi. Now, I don't mind having called these neo-Confederates Nazis, whatever, I don't give a shit. When they're like, actually, we don't go by that name anymore. This is what we call ourselves. Like, all right, dude, whatever, they're still Nazis. We're the American version. We just want to bring back slavery. I'm like, all right, you're my enemy. (laughs) I'm willing to fight If you're saying keep America white, then I'm going to call you a Nazi. Yeah. At some point you're like, well, Mussolini's forces were fascist, but different. You know, I don't give a shit. Exactly. But it's like, I'm fine to say that Trump is a Nazi or Trump is a fascist. But I don't want to encourage his fucking voters to identify that way. And the more people that we can bring away from that, the better. And it is a matter of like, there's just like so many fucking cultural differences that people aren't necessarily taking into consideration. Like even like the gun issue, which is different on the far left because you go far enough left, you get your guns back or whatever. But like a lot of the people around where I live are probably Republicans, are probably not far right, and are probably... The Republicans because they grew up Republican and also because like things that make sense in cities don't necessarily make sense to them out here. Guns is a big issue. It's the same argument I make. I wrote this piece for Business Insider about like pro-gun shit a couple years ago. And I'm basically saying telling people that all guns are bad and everyone has to give up their guns is a gift to the far right. Because you're saying, well, if you believe in a gun for self-defense, you might as well be a right winger. You might as well be a far right person. And that sucks. That's a bad idea. I do also get why different people don't want to interact with people who are a certain type. For sure. One of the people from Yellow Peril Tactical sent me these memes and they cracked me up because, yeah, our suggestion was, so this governor in New Mexico who just came out and said that because of a health emergency, nobody's going to be permitted to carry guns oh, in yeah. public anymore, mm-hmm. open or concealed. And it just got overturned. And now she's saying, oh, well, now we're going to change it to parks or something like that, which I'm pretty sure it already was. My point was that here are all these people going to this pro-gun demonstration. We, as people who are either center or left of center, 
should be taking this opportunity because it's a cause that we agree in to go there and say like, hey, I'm the person that your news media is saying is anti-gun and I'm here with you as a gun owner carrying or doing whatever. And never said, hey, go talk to these dudes with the red armbands doing the goose step. Right. I said, not everybody in this crowd is a Nazi. Right. And certain people took that as like, it's weird. It's like they didn't read the whole paragraph. They just said, I'm not standing with Nazis. And nowhere in that did I say that. Their position was that, no, they're not going to interact with proud conservatives because any one of them could be a Nazi. And it's like not on them to figure it out. Yes. And that's also assuming like we are literally the proof that not every gun owner is a conservative. The fact that you're going to assume that everyone in this crowd is one is part of the problem and part of the reason that we don't have any of this across the aisle, so to speak, cooperation, because people instinctively assume so many things about people that they don't know. And it's so damaging. Heuristics are important. If you feel like it's too risky for you to go and do that, I totally respect that. But don't then turn around and be like, also, if you do it, you're a traitor. Exactly. And you hate me and want me to die. So this meme that Yellow Peril Tactical sent to me, so it's got a leftist on the other side and the dude's wearing a shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like. The text is, you want to learn more? What do you want? A trophy? Yeah, totally. Thanks for not being total human garbage. It's not my job to educate you. I don't exist to serve you. White people like you always ask questions, which is proof of how being white is bad, yada, yada, yada. And then on the right, it's a dude with a swastika shirt. He's saying, you want to know more? Awesome. What do you want me to educate you about first? Do you want me to tell you the scientific arguments for racism? Wait, let me get my Muslim rape statistics. And most people who join a group don't join a group because they agreed with everything that they said. They joined the group because they were the ones that didn't treat them like shit. Yeah, totally. And like you saying, we should be cautious when calling people Nazis. I've had conversations with conservatives on my page saying, like, you're one of the few people in this space who I can have a conversation with who I know is going to listen to me because usually when I make these points, people call me a Nazi and I'm not a Nazi and I don't have any Nazi views like that. I think it's a shame that we don't have more of that. And I don't blame people who have been through shit playing it safe. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of us that don't have an excuse not to kind of give people a little bit more legroom. Like me, I'm a straight white dude. Yeah. I can pass as whatever I want, really. A black trans woman is not going to have the same luxury of going to an event like that and assuming everyone's going to be nice to her. This mustache makes me look like a cop. (laughs) I'd be loved at these places. You know, people would be giving me discounts walking into the place, just assuming. So I can go to these things. And I've had conversations like this with people at these pro-gun events where they're wearing Trump shirts. This dude was wearing a Vietnam vest, like a Vietnam veteran vest, and had all these patches on it that were just like, build the wall, all this stuff. His grandkid was trans. And I was having a conversation with somebody else who approached me because I was wearing one of our Better Way to A shirts. Mm -hmm. And he overheard that person say something about trans people and guns. And then he came up to us and started talking to us and was just like, you know, my grandson is trans. And the fact that he was like curious to me meant a lot. Instead of just being like, that person is dead to me. Yeah. If you get a person like that who's curious, And not immediately dismissive or saying trans people are groomers and all this crazy shit that we hear about now. But then you go and immediately call that person a Nazi and a piece of shit and a bigot and all that stuff. That's what they're going to turn into because they're going to have animosity for people who treat them like shit. And I think us being in this industry as gun owners, we have this privilege. I use that word. 
because we have something that transcends politics. Right. We have this connection already that we can use to build bridges and build connections and help with mutual understanding. And I think that's a big thing that will end up benefiting us in the long run, because the more cohesive of a community that we have, the better we can take care of each other. And the better we can take care of each other, the better we can make sure that everyone's safe, the less we need other people to do it for us, or or the less people think that they have to do it for us, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's my monologue for the episode. (laughs) One of the things I think about a lot, because I do this history podcast, I'll keep bringing it up. I've done a lot around the Spanish Civil War, right? Which was when Franco, a fascist, staged a coup and tried to overthrow a democratic republic of Spain. Succeeded. Well, he failed at the coup, but eventually won a civil war, right? And it was the big first battle against fascism in the modern era. And it was absolutely a left versus right fight. And he has this quote. Franco said, I am willing to kill one half of Spain to rule the other half. And to me, this is like a quintessential fascist thing to say, right? And then a thing that I have to be really aware of is when does our rhetoric look like that? When does our rhetoric sound like that? Do you think that we can only have a good and positive society if the following large chunk of people die? That's bad. Now, being willing to fight people who are trying to stop you from being free is good. The very few things that I say are like positive in U.S. history is like it's good. The Union overall was the right side of the Civil War because the Civil War actually was about slavery. It was about states' rights to slavery. They were very upfront about that at the time. And it's like revisionist history, all the people claiming otherwise. Bro, I get in so many arguments about this. <laughs> it's like they were very upfront about it. They believed it was moral and good that they were slavers or whatever, right? And hell, that's why West Virginia exists, actually, is because the people who lived here didn't want to fight and die for slavery. And so they seceded from Virginia and became part of the Union. Actually, because they were poor rural people instead of the rich fucks who owned all the fucking people. And it is interesting because that was the deadliest war in U.S. history, including World War II, like in just pure numbers of people dying. So therefore, wildly disproportionate percentage of people died. It was about a million people died. I don't remember what percent it was. And I'm all right with it because whatever it takes to end chattel slavery is worth fighting for. That is like something I believe in my soul. doesn't make the union good. Isn't it weird? That's like a controversial opinion. I know. That like chattel slavery needed to end. Yeah. And it's like, The union wasn't the good side. It was the good side in comparison. It was the less evil side. And sometimes that's all you get. Like stopping the Nazis was the less evil people invading the more evil people because Stalin and the U.S. government are both bad historically. And (laughs) Germany was worse. And that's saying something because I hate Stalin. So sometimes, yes, things need to be fought for and kill for and die for. But overall... We need to try and create a society that works for everyone. The fewer people we can pick out as enemies, the better. And that doesn't mean no enemies. It just means we should be fucking careful. It's better if we can fix things without driving people to horrible violence. Yeah, totally. Also, because like horrible violence sucks and everyone loses. You don't win gunfights, you survive them. Even if you don't get shot, you have PTSD. It sucks. I 100% agree that the North going to war, not just to reclaim the South, but to stop chattel slavery. I believe that that was justified. But look at the cultural scars that it's left on this country. Yeah. I don't know that we'll ever get over it. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, I have neo-Confederates talking about killing me. I'm over it. (laughs) I'm over the Civil War. The South is not rising again. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, Connecticut I know what you mean, the chat. <laughs> <laughs> even you saying that with the disdain for the idea of the South rising, that's a whole thing. That's a whole mood, right? The fact that the Confederacy exists in your mind and that something that you're like, oh, whatever, dismiss these guys, proves that it's still there. The scars are still there. No, you're right. One day, if we just like kind of forget about it, I think that would be better. You know, it's like learn from history. Yeah. But like, Jesus fucking Christ, the identity politics tied up in the South versus the North is so contrived now. But you have to be careful there because black history. That's so true. Yep. That's a good point. You say forget slavery and you forget forget like a lot. No. All of a sudden it's like, wow, why do all these black people live in poor neighborhoods? Why? Like we don't, we have no idea where this came from. Whereas like, I'm kind of talking out my ass here. My point being that it's like, it still has like this daily impact on us, this horrific war. And to think about what an impact that has on us, well, what kind of impact does the couple hundred years of chattel slavery preceding it have? That is the cause of it. It's the same as like the wound of the civil war was not caused by the North invading the South. The wound of the civil war was caused by building this country on chattel slavery, which is a different form of slavery than historical slavery, which generally was like captives of war and things like that in most cultures. That wasn't good either. But like there is a specific unique evil of American slavery. There's a distinct difference to say like you're a human being and you have to do what I say or else I'll kill you. That's one kind of slavery to be like, no, you're an inferior form of life and it's my sacred duty from God to civilize you. And that's why you have to work without me. Yeah, forever. And your children too. Yeah, it's wild. And this is the kind of stuff that I liked that you mentioned, not as bad people winning World War II because there were no good sides. I mean, the good sides were like Poland and France and people that were just invaded by the Nazis and steamrolled. But because that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make when talking to people who aren't exactly like you, beliefs-wise, but do share certain beliefs. There's no compromise with people on the far end of the aisle who think that people are not equal based on who they are, how they live, you know, where they're from, anything like that. Those aren't the people that I have any interest in reaching. But who I do have interest in reaching are the people who are at least willing to listen and might not be outwardly hostile towards my friends. And there are significantly more of those people than I think our community gives them credit for. Yeah, totally. Because we're so used to seeing people in groups at a lot of these events behaving a certain way, saying certain things, that we will assign that type of ideology to people who we don't even know. I really think that having this tribal mentality that I'm only going to work with the people who think exactly like me is not a way to help fix things unless you're, you know, a commune, unless you're living in a walled off area, completely uninfluenced by the outside world, and you don't have to interact with them. Yeah. That's not what we live in, though. And to say that, hey, I'm not going to try to talk to these people because they believe X, Y, and Z, even though we agree on these other things, it's almost, you know, and again, I preface this by saying it depends on your personal situation. But I think there are a lot of people out there who write people off and don't need to. And I think it's selfish because It's one thing to say you want to help your community, but another thing to put in the work. And that's what a lot of it is often. I haven't won every argument that I've ever had with someone who has disagreed with me. I've lost. Yeah. I've had conversations with people where I thought it was going to go well and go one way. And it's either just proven that it's a waste of time to try to convince them otherwise, or I've had a bad day and I'm not on my game. But showing somebody that you're putting in the effort 
to try to help somebody understand your side of things better is how you foster that growth and how you foster that communal partnership, even though you might not believe everything that the other person believes. If you can exist in harmony in your own respective communities, then I think that's almost just as good as them being in yours. Well, then with firearms, it's so funny because it's like there's people who are into guns from a like Second Amendment or hunting or self-defense, whatever point of view, right? There's people who like want firearms because they're part of their culture, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's people who want guns because they want to murder large swaths of people. And a large chunk of the right wing, at the very least, is collecting firearms, the far right, is collecting firearms to kill all the gay people, kill all the immigrants and this and that. But they are not the majority of gun owners. The majority of gun owners, they have guns because they believe it is their right to, because they think they're fun, because they think they're neat, because they survive based on them, based on hunting, because they have an angry, violent ex-husband. I can talk about guns with, well, literally everyone around here, like when I go into a gun store, they like look at me a little bit funny, but then I'm like, oh, I don't carry that. I carry this. And they're like, oh, you're fine. You're like here. One of yeah, us. One of us. in the nose ring. I'm wearing a mask, which, you know, confuses everyone around here. But it mostly just makes me look like an old person. No one's like, oh, that terrible city person is coming here. Because the only people who wear masks around here tend to be older than me. You know, and like absolutely a large chunk of this could be based on the fact that I'm white. But I am not straight passing. No one looks at me and says, hello, fellow heterosexual man. You know, <laughs> not a part of my life. And it's mostly just fucking chill. Again, everyone's experience is different. I also live in a very nice place, literally in the fact that people are nice to each other because... It is a poor rural community. Generally speaking, the South is nicer than the North. Yeah, although we are technically not the South. Everyone from the North thinks that we're from the South. <laughs> yeah. I'm originally from Maryland, which is the ultimate can't win state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maryland tried to fight for the Confederacy and is south of the Mason-Dixon line, <laughs> but then fought for the Union. And then everyone from the South is like, fuck you, you're not in it. And then everyone from the North is like, fuck you, you're not in it. And I'm like, whatever, I don't actually care. I agree with you that there are people out there that are buying guns solely for the purpose of eradicating certain groups of people. But the fact that you go into a gun store and you have people that are willing to talk to you and aren't outwardly hostile to me, I don't believe that it's even the large portion of conservatives, not even just gun owners. But I think the majority of conservatives out there, we have Trump voters and we have like people even crazier because we live in we have a two party system. So just with the math, you have people that have to vote for Trump. Half the country voted for Trump. Half the country is not Nazis. I think there are people out there like that, but I think that we can have conversations with people who might be more conservative than us, but are not wanting to see us dead or take away our rights. But it is a growing portion of the right wing. And that is the thing that like, I think is worth, I don't want to like valorize the center right. Overall, the center right is drifting far right. I have this experience that was like really telling where I used to live in North Carolina and rural Western North Carolina. And I was driving somewhere and on this rural road, the road was like backed up, which is just like weird. And so I got out of my car to go look and then come back. And then I was like telling people what was going on, which was that they were felling a tree right around the corner and they had blocked off both lanes. And this is exactly the kind of crisis that usually no one gives a shit what you look like. People are just curious and want to know what's happening, right? Normally in that exact experience, everyone would just be like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, like what's going on? And this was like right after Trump first got elected and I'm wearing a dress about half of the men were just staring angrily into the distance and refusing to look at me. It's not even looking no, at you. No, they would not make, not even eye contact. They were just like 
I don't even see what's happening. I'm fucking eyes. They couldn't even look at you and be like, I disagree with your life. They were confused and aroused at the same time. Totally. (laughs) I have the weirdest boner right now. There was a marked difference before and after Trump's election of how I get treated. I'll agree with you 100% all day on that. But I didn't say like, oh, everyone who lives in Western North Carolina who isn't dressed like a punk must be a right winger. So fuck them. Like I'm still telling everyone else what's going on on the road. That was my like moment where I was like, oh, shit's changing and it's not good. Culture war is bad, man. It's bad for your brain. Yeah, well, it definitely is bad for your brain. I knew a guy who I have to stop making like references to my personal life where people can connect the dots. (laughs) I knew a guy who used to live up here and now he lives somewhere else, but he was otherwise a great guy as far as like somebody who I could yeah I literally can't give any of it I can't say what I did with them or anything like that but your old hunting buddy who was born in 1843 yeah, as a I vampire hunt with <laughs> he was a crazy Q dude oh fuck if you never got into politics with this dude you'd be like oh this guy's awesome so much fun to hang out with and then the second he starts talking about politics you're like what the yeah. fuck did I just walk into and I never heard him say anything specifically about trans people because he was gone during this weird thing going on now with the conflation of trans people and pedophiles. But it is a very strange situation we have going on in this country. Part of me wonders how much of it is like actually spread out through this country and how much of it is just on Instagram and online, you know, and like the illusion of that it's everywhere. I know it's definitely more prevalent than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. And I know these people who are on Instagram go outside. Not enough, in my opinion, but. I wonder how much our internet experiences shapes our real life expectation of the world. Oh, absolutely. And it absolutely happens in every political position, right, left and center. But I think that they learned that there wasn't as many of them as they thought on January 6th. I think that they thought they were a mass movement. They genuinely (laughs) thought that they were fighting for democracy, even though they were being specifically tricked into fighting for anti-democracy. Because if you don't know anyone who voted for Biden, why would you believe that Biden won the election? Yeah, it's largely regional and largely like who you hang out with. Because if you hang out with all conservatives, you're going to be like, well, I didn't vote for Biden, did you? And they're going to say no. And well, clearly the election was stolen. Yeah, exactly. And like someone's selling you was stolen. I will say the one thing that's really nice about being a weirdo is that I almost never have that experience of someone who like secretly is fucked up because the fucked up people just don't talk to me because I'm like (laughs) a weird punk with bangs. Kind of out themselves. So essentially what you're saying is you're privileged. Yes, absolutely. With my... uh, (laughs) You're so privileged. You don't have to talk to these people? God, check yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's one of the downsides of looking like a cop is that people actually think you are one and and people just share whatever weird fucked up right-wing fantasies they have with you. (laughs) (laughs) I walked into a U-Haul once and it was the funniest thing. I had gold aviators on with my mustache Mm -hmm. and the dude from like 40 feet away was like, you a cop? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you have to tell me if you are. <laughs> when, you, when you get that question, it's like, okay, which side of the spectrum am I on here? Dude, it was like 40 feet away. It wasn't like we had casual conversation. He was like, hey, are you a cop by any chance? As I walked in, instead of being like, hey, welcome to U-Haul. Does he want to shake your hand or blow your head off? Yeah, I was like, coming or staying, coming or going. I had one time, I may have told this story before, so it stopped me, but we were partying in college. And when I would go to a party, you know, there'd be alcohol and other stuff. I would always take off my gun and put it and stash it somewhere. So in this case, I stashed it in the main closet of this fine apartment I was visiting. And we we're making a lot of noise and the party had been going for a while. And I was pretty shit-faced. There's a knock on the door and somebody said, oh, shit, Andrew, it's the cops. I shouted out, somebody get my gun. <laughs> 
a third person opened the door and it was just the security guard. He had his hands up already as the door opened and was like, I'm not a cop. Immediately. I'm not a cop. <laughs> That's funny. I make $12 an hour. There was like a car on in the parking lot and he was like trying to see whose it was. Oh, it's funny. There were like lights on or something. I was like, I'm so sorry. This was very irresponsible of all of us. <laughs> you were never in any danger. It's okay. On that note, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. I definitely think you're one of those people that we could do a part two with eventually because we have so much stuff to talk about. Sure. I will regrettably let you go because you have a life that does not revolve around the A Better Way to a podcast. That's true. I'd like to point out that I also have to go. It's only Jordan who can stay. Andrew also has a life. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. My father-in-law is only guaranteed for another 20 minutes, so I should probably go out there too. I'm glad we can just agree to leave each other. Yeah. Yes, we all have busy lives and things going on. It's not any weird attachment issues. Before you go, we have a tradition on this podcast where we started calling it dad advice. Okay. But realize that that's not appropriate for everybody who's not Always a dad. can be daddies. I'll figure out what advice it is based on. Yeah, please. Can. Zaddy advice. If you have a piece of advice to leave listeners with, it doesn't have to do with guns. It doesn't have to do with anything in particular, just a little negative knowledge that you think might benefit them, then feel free to share. You know, it's funny is like most of the style of advice that I currently have, I turned 40 recently. Most of it is like advice to my younger self or like young punks or whatever. Sober sex is the best sex. That's my advice. There you go. I have found that to be true. Yeah. I mean, as a conscious kink, you can sometimes be like, oh, well, this time let's get drunk. But like, when you know that all the consent is good and happy and everyone's excited, you can do so much more. Not to mention everything's working fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean because I'm dyspraxic, so I get real clumsy when I'm a little tipsy. <laughs> That's funny. I can't wait to come to Texas and get you drunk so you could fall down and I can laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been working on it a while. I'm not that bad anymore. All right. That's awesome advice. Very rarely do I have nothing to say. Yeah. People can agree or disagree. I don't care. That's just my advice. Yeah. The advantage of dad advice is it's going to get ignored anyway. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. Well, Margaret, thank you again for sticking yeah. this out and being so cool. I didn't think it would go any other way. I'm glad we're finally able to link up and have this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking again some other time. Definitely. We'll stay in touch. Enjoy the rest of your day. Ha, <laughs> it's like... Just wanted to take a second to thank our newest Patreon supporter, 4non06. Thank you so much for joining the Patreon. We appreciate the hell out of you. Okay, back to the outro. Thank you.